Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. What does the word disruptive mean to you? It means going beyond the ordinary, going beyond the status quo. Not thinking in the conventional way, not just sort of following the herd. Disruptive means shaking things up, you know? Disruptive entrepreneur is somebody who sees the problem and embraces the problem with a new way. Shake up and awakening. Quality will take care of itself and you'll go from being disruptive but also profitable. When you use your own reservoir of talent, when you love what you do, then you disrupt. Mix it up, change it up and dominate. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hello and welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. Nope, this isn't Rob, this is Harry. And yet again, Rob has leveraged me out to do the introduction for today's podcast. So for those of you who don't know, I work behind the scenes creating and recording the content for you guys. So today's interview is with Dylan Jones, who is the UK editor of GQ magazine. So GQ magazine has been around since 1931 and is a global magazine. It's published in countries all around the world and primarily focuses on men's fashion and style, but also talks a lot about culture and movies and sport and tech and uh, a lot of other things. They actually do their own podcasts as well. And they are not just a magazine. So some of the content that is talked about in the interview is how uh, GQ has had to evolve and diversify its portfolio over the past um, several decades. Obviously, about 10, 15 years ago, magazines like FHM, Zoo and Nuts and all these kind of quote unquote lads, mags magazines were the big sellers back in the day. But they've all gone now and GQ is kind of it's still stayed as its established brand and is still going strong today. And Dylan gets into a lot about kind of the innovation and the process and how they've managed to sustain that. And he's played a, a big part in doing that. Dylan's been around working at GQ since 1999. And um, when he first came into the company, uh, which he will explain, obviously, uh, the market from 1999 to the current day, you know, it massively changed. And that's due to changing demographics, world audiences, the market, uh, you know, the internet, there's, there's many things. And, and they have a really uh, diverse interview about innovation. Dylan is also an author. He's published many books, many biographies uh, on people like David Bowie, Jim Morrison, who was the lead singer of The Doors. He's done books on um, the former prime minister, uh, David Cameron, many more. He's uh, someone who has been creating content, you know, writing books, uh, a journalist for, for decades now, even way before he uh, started working at GQ. He's a really interesting guy, and I think you guys will really like this interview. So finally, if you head to the official Rob Moore YouTube channel, you can uh, watch the interview. We conducted the interview at the offices in GQ, Dylan's office right in um, centre of London. So we also published the videos the same day the podcasts go out. That's for interviews. So for you guys who want to watch the videos, go ahead, go watch them on YouTube. That's official Rob Moore YouTube channel. Subscribe, please. So enough of me. But remember, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything. Thank you. Hi there. Dylan, how are you, sir? How are you doing? Good, thank you. Good to see you. Good to see you. All right. Yeah, thanks for doing the podcast. Great. Where do you want to park us all? Hi there. Um, it's up to you. You choose. Okay. Wherever you, you want to be. You guys know what you like in the background, yeah, so. You put the current magazine pages up here. Is that how you can see? Uh, yeah, I mean, we do. You know, we've got a magazine that still runs on a monthly cycle. Then we do two fashion magazines every year, and then of course we've got 
Uh, we have a meeting every morning to do uh, uh, planning for that for the following day's website, plus all the social feeds. So it's a it's a far more sort of complicated beast than it was ten years ago. Yeah. It's exciting though; it's good. Yeah, business is good, which is the important thing. Yeah, great. Yeah, I interviewed Barry last week. Eddie's dad. Oh, really? Yeah, I'd, I'd not met him before. How he was, was he? Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Mega personality. Yeah. Probably a little bit, maybe less incisive and cutting than you might right. assume. Um, yeah, he was good, wasn't he, Harry? Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. So much I want to ask you, but I think I'll save it for when the cameras are on. Dylan, thanks for doing the podcast. Pleasure. Very grateful. And thanks for inviting us into your offices. You're a journalist. Columnist, author, editor, um, maybe the, or the world perceives that you've done those things. How would you describe what you do and who you are, maybe as your profession? Uh, well, I, I'm, a, I'm a professional journalist and I've worked at Condé Nath quite some time. Um, have also done uh, a series of books, uh, quite active with the British Fashion Council, uh, with the Hay Festival Foundation. Uh, and the great thing about the magazine that it has such uh, a wide uh, variety of interests that it allows us to pivot off into different areas, whether that's fashion or literature mm. or politics or what have you. So it's a uh, um, it's very engrossing. Mm. And is there any area or element of that that you prefer to do? Um, stay in business. That's the most important <laughs> yeah, thing. Good step one. <laughs> um, it changes all the time. I think that the remit of GQ is quite broad. Uh, perhaps we've made it broader over the years, but as I say, it does allow us to 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 fold in various different disciplines, which it might previously not have done. And do you see your role more in GQ as the primarily from a journalist side or an author side, or, or more like an editorial direction side? Uh, it's 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 principally editing. You're you're steering the magazine, mm. um, making sure that it's going in the right direction, uh, both editorially and commercially. Working with our uh, commercial team, yeah. Mm. And so you have strategic vision and direction of the magazine, not just Absolutely. obviously the the yeah. articles. Yeah. And um, is that a role you enjoy? Driving yeah. Them? And it's changed enormously over the years mm. because. We're not just producing a monthly magazine, uh, and uh, uh, in this uh, in this climate, we're producing a magazine of, of a standard that um, uh, you don't often see anymore. And I, I don't say that conceitedly; I say that because the industry's changed enormously. Um, so we're producing a monthly magazine. We're producing a fashion magazine that comes out twice a year. Uh, we have lots of events, including our big men of the year events. Um, we have food and drink awards, car awards. Uh, we did a, uh, a big event at the Hay Festival every year. Um, we're also closely involved with the British Fashion Council. Um, we helped steer Men's Fashion Week, uh, which has been going on now for seven years, uh, which is very rewarding. Uh, plus, we have uh, um, all our social channels, our platforms, plus a website that needs constant updating. Mm. Um, so it's a fully integrated team, um, and we're very active on all of those different platforms. And is that because 
you like that variety and you wanted to move that way or is that a reaction to how well, the world I mean, you has have changed? To, I mean, th- these days you have to have everything. Mm. And it's a, it's a bit like being back on a newspaper. You have a conference every morning uh, and you're trying to um, uh, drive the news agenda as, as, as well as reflect what's, uh, what's going on in the world. Mm. And we have a much smaller team than, than uh, any national newspaper. But um, we have various uh, pillars which we're very, uh, very active on, uh, and you and you try and um, try and do the best that you can. Mm. And you said I picked up some words. You said current climate. You know the the world or your industry has changed. So what is the current climate, and how has your industry changed? Well, the industry has changed primarily because of technology, because distribution channels have changed enormously. Uh, and uh, audience consumer habits have changed enormously. When we started, people didn't have mobile telephones, or they did in very small numbers. Now everyone has a telephone. Uh, everyone consumes news and entertainment in a very different way. Um, and you have to be able to cater for that. So we have a print magazine, we have a, a digital magazine which you can download onto your tablet or your telephone. We have social feeds. We have all manner of things, but then everybody does these days. Mm. And was there a time when this all this changed where you were a bit worried for the future of the magazine? I think you're, uh, I think you're always concerned about technological changes and about changes that are, that are out of your control. Uh, for instance, when things like Instagram come along or Twitter or Snapchat uh, or the development of, of big brands online. But we're very confident uh, in our abilities to talk to a, a particular um, segment uh, uh, of, of um, our demographic. And um, I think if you understand your product and you understand your audience, then it's all about delivery. Mm. And how would you describe the GQ product and audience? Well, I suppose the magazine started as a, sort of, as a lifestyle guide, um, and it still is a lifestyle guide. But I think it's become, as I said, I think it's become more comprehensive. I think there's, well, I, I know there is, there's, there, there's far more long-form journalism in the magazine than, than there ever was before. Mm. Before There's far more politics. Right. Um, but you could look at the magazine in a very prosaic, reductive way and say, we're basically a vehicle for selling trousers or telling men what trousers to buy. That's mm. also a very good thing. Yeah. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. But as I say, you have to, um, you have to know your audience and you, know, you, you have to know your brand. Mm. Something interesting you said, which I didn't know we were going to talk about, um, is long form. So in the podcasting world, long forms had like, I don't know if you could call it a mini revival, but I, I think everyone thought that social media was reducing our attention spans. Um, but in podcasts now, some of the best podcasts are, two, three-hour conversation. It seems to have had a, a revival as such. And is that still, is that the case of your magazine where people want good quality content and they're not just swiping and flicking? 100%. When I, uh, when I got involved with the magazine nearly 20 years ago, reintroducing quality journalism to the magazine was very important to me. Uh, hiring the very, very best writers we could afford was very important to me. And 
back then we paid more than most people in Fleet Street, and today we we certainly do. Mm. Um, we take great pride in delivering journalism at a very high level. That costs money, and I think in this day and age, in this in this climate, it's never been more important. Because you're right, everything's quick, everything's disposable. Um, we live in an era that's that's dominated by accusations of fake news. And if you look at the way that content is regurgitated online, it's copied, it's copied inaccurately, um, and it becomes this sort of long tail of material you can't really trust anymore. Mm. I think trust is in- increasingly mm. important. And I actually do think that because there is so much crap out there. There's, there, there's just so much stuff, just stuff that just gets regurgitated. People can't trust. But actually, I think there's beginning to be a reappreciation of of of, ec- of expertise, of excellence. Mm. Um, I think you're seeing that in that sort of granular transparency which people want. You're seeing it in food supply chains. You're seeing it in the manufacture of clothing. You're particularly seeing it in politics. We we saw two huge bumps um, after Brexit and after the presidential election after after Trump. What are bumps? Uh, sorry, bumps. What does that well, mean? Well, just there's, there's people. People are far more engaged in in politics now. Right. And we've had to fire, uh, hire another six writers specifically right. writing about politics because people want it. People mm. respond to it. We live in a very engaged time where I think people are concerned and they want to talk, they want to listen. Um, you must have discovered this in the uh, in your world. Mm. Um, and that's good because it means people are really engaged. Yeah. And you said quality journalism. Um, what's your definition of quality journalism? Or, or quality, quality journalism that journalism? is well-commissioned, um, that is well-researched, that is well written, well edited, well displayed. All of these things cost money. Uh, and there is a vehicle for quality journalism. And just because there are fewer places where you can read or consume quality journalism actually puts more of a premium on it. And there's those journalists who are involved in that are actually more sought after now than they ever were because there's so few of them and there are so few places where you can consume it. Mm. So maybe kind of conversely with this world of anyone can share anything, quality now has a premium and there is more demand again. I believe so. I really do. And I don't just say that because I want it to be true. I mean, I do want it to be true. Um, uh, And I'm not just saying that out of... um, uh, for 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 commercial reasons, I take great pride in that, and I enjoy consuming it, and I I enjoy reading quality journalism as well as producing it, and I think that's a very important part of what we do. It sounds quite high minded, a little bit pompous, but I think it's really true. Mm. So I remember because I used to read GQ at uni was when I really got into it twenty years ago. <laughs> I'm not, you know, I've, I've read it ever since. And I remember back... You haven't in, changed a bit. No, <laughs> nor have I. And at the time at university, people were reading like Loaded, FHM, and it was just all covered in women and everything else. 
Um, and those kind of laddie lads magazines seem to have, maybe it's me or they, they seem to have drifted off and become less relevant. Um, I know Playboy changed the way they present the women. And not that I know, I just know that they did that. Um, so do you think that was a, a shift that you dealt with better than those kind of magazines? Or was it just convenient that you were in a different space? Well, Cheeky's always been in a different space, but you have to remember that 20, 25 years ago, those magazines were selling in huge numbers. Mm. And you had the likes of FHM, Loaded, uh, Maxim, uh, Later, Nuts, Zoo. Stuff, was there one called Stuff? Stuff. They're all the same thing, basically. Lots and lots of of magazines, because that market was big and Mm. you had... um, uh, you know, there was a big, big consumer base. We had uh, someone who was seconded from the American company who came to spend some time with us a few years ago. Uh, and he'd come to cover meetings. And in those days, we'd have all the magazines um, laid out on, 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 on the table and what we laughingly call the competitive set. And this was in the days when FHM was still being published. And he said, why is that magazine there? Because it's very different from your magazine. And, and someone said, if you'd have been in this room sort of a decade previously, that magazine would have been selling 900,000 copies a month. I mean, wow. that's, they were big, big numbers. Mm. The problem is, it, it was a zeitgeist moment. It was r- riding on the sort of coattails of Britpop. Um, and you had a very sort of boisterous, aggressive, male, sort of funny, laddish Mm. uh, sort of sensibility. But the problem with those magazines is that their only real USP was their sexuality. And inevitably, those magazines stopped growing. And when things stop growing, people tend to panic. And the button that they pressed in order to try and keep their numbers up was the sex button. Mm. And of course you can only push that button so far before you, um, you sort of turn into pornography. Yeah. Uh, plus it coincided with a complete revolution in terms of the internet. And if you wanted that sort of material, you didn't have to walk into a news agent. You can get it online. So it's a combination of things. It's a combination of market forces. It was a generational thing. Those men had grown up because it, it was a very adolescent, uh, um, consumer base. Mm. Um, plus you had the, the sex issue. Um, plus it, it no longer seemed relevant. It really was a sort of generational shift. And all of those magazines have now gone. Wow. All of them. Yeah. And I don't like to see anyone um, uh, losing their jobs. And there were lots of very, very talented people who worked on those magazines. But the culture had changed. Mm. And what do you think GQ did differently? I think we always had... We were always a magazine that was aimed at the top of the market. We always, already had, always had the support of the luxury goods industry. We always had an emphasis on quality journalism as well as uh, some of the more sort of rival material. I mean, having said that, when I joined in 99, if I'd have put a man on the cover, I probably would have been fired. Wow. Because the market was driven by um, sexy women, sexy yeah. girls, and you... Uh, you appeal to the market. Yeah. Over the years, we grad, because I think that's the way to stay in business and be successful is to anticipate the market as well mm. as reflecting the market. And 
we gradually moved away from that. Um, and now it's, it's, it's sort of the opposite, really. We might put a woman on, on our cover maybe once, twice a year, but it's predominantly driven by men. Wow. And if you were to anticipate the future of GQ, the market, where do you think it's going? I think that what people want from us, all, all they're buying is our taste, literally. Mm. I mean, we have a certain amount of access, um, which we do. Um, I'm now, sorry, what does access mean? But two personalities, right, yeah. places, people, mm. talent, tech. Um, that's important. Do you and mean th- for your readers or do you mean for you as a company? Both. Yeah. Because um, we only we, we we only do it for our readers, mm. um, but essentially people are buying into us because of our taste, and a lot of the things in the magazine anybody could have have access to, but we're in the lucky position of of enough people liking our decisions of us saying this is a this is a good watch, this is a bad watch, mm. this is a person with good ideals and um, good good vision. This is a person with exactly the opposite, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I don't think that's going to change. Mm. I think that one of the interesting things is that perhaps a magazine cover is less important than it's ever been because people buy into us in a very different way. Um, the, the, the growth that we're seeing from our, our, our app, our digital app, is quite considerable. That's brilliant, and but people are buying that on subscription, which makes the regularity, the sort of the importance of having a, a regular cover, which is going to draw people in perhaps less important, which is interesting and, and great. Mm. Um, so it changes. Mm. Okay. Um, can we move now into maybe a bit more about the writing? I know you've um, written a, a lot of books. I was very interested in your early writing that you chose. Um, people like Paul Smith. Was it Jim Morrison? Um was there something that drew you to writing about those? I think in the early days you get, um, certainly with me, uh, writing books was a bit like someone saying, would you, would you like to uh, a ride in a helicopter? And you go, oh, that sounds interesting. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, yeah. But uh, most of the books I've done have been uh, books I've, that I've wanted to do, um, but often they're, they're, they're books that, that have come along at the right time that, that seem like an interesting proposition. Mm. So it's not like you grew up being a massive fan, for example. It was just you were moving in that direction, they were in this direction, they were relevant, you were ready. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so you don't like, because I know you've just written one recently about, with da- about David Bowie. Is, is that, again, something you just, okay, well, we're finding the right time? No, I think Bowie has been someone that I've been... Um, incredibly interested in uh, for a very long period of time, most of my life. And um, the the two books that I've written on Bowie, including the most recent one, have been uh, real labours of love. And they're they're they're, they're probably uh, in terms of um, well, they 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 certainly been the most successful books I've done. But mm. they're probably the books that I've had I've taken the most care with, I suppose. Right. And how long does a book project like that. I've written a few books I, pro- I should think I'm a, probably a bit more of a chaotic and less careful writer than yourself but I mean you think oh, I'll write a book what a good idea and then your life's ruined for god knows how long <laughs> when you're doing it and then all the all your life that's backing up when you're pushing the world away to write your book so when you're in a book writing project what sort of time frame does it take what's your life like when you're writing a book 
Well, my life doesn't stop because the priority is, is work here. Work here becomes increasingly demanding. Um, but I don't have hobbies. I don't play golf. Um, I don't, um, uh, I don't do what other, you know, it's, um, that's what, it. This is what you do. Uh, so my hobby is, is writing because so much of what I do is administrative anyway. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a real, it's a real joy. Mm. And how long does it take you roughly a book project? Um, on average, probably about 18 months. And then is, how much of that is researching? How much of that is writing? How much of that is editing? It's probably split into those three, mm. actually. I think that um, uh, you need to do, you always need to do more research than you think. Yeah. Uh, which is important. Mm. The writing is the most interesting part because you're actually creating and then editing is incredibly important because you're uh you just want to sort of it's, it's like making a uh a sauce or something you're just continually boiling it down to get to something that is as uh as um um is as tasty as possible i suppose <laughs> so yeah i wish i could call my writing process that i wrote a book called um, money, and I wrote about 155,000 words and then read into my contract that my publisher wanted it to be about 60,000 words. So that was my first mistake. And I, I edited it about five times and managed to get 5,000 words out, but then I'd put 5,000 words in and I found it really difficult and in the end just had to give it to someone else. Do you allow, it, do you allow anyone else any editorial um, oversight of your book or is it just all you? Oh, I do. Um, uh... I, I always look for, forward to a healthy argument with my editors, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because do you, do you find you get to the point where, like, you just can't see this objectively anymore? You're so in it. Um, no. Oh. I mean... It's just me, then. <laughs> no, no, no. no. I, I mean, I, um, uh, I, I, I take what my editors and uh, agents and publishers say incredibly seriously. Mm. And, um, but no, I, I, um, uh, I find the process actually not easy but i understand the process and i think i've become quite good at it over the years but no i i, I always listen to people mm. and writing about other people i guess you must have learned a lot in writing about um david bowie paul smith I and mean, you must have learned a lot about i don't know becoming successful in creative endeavors or in business and creative endeavors like paul smith um is well, I think in, inevitably you're learning things. And also as a journalist, you're, you're looking for things which you don't know uh, um, because you hope that the readers don't know them either. So, yeah, I think it's a constant, it's, it's a constant journey of discovery in that respect. Mm. I mean, you have to be inquisitive. Yeah. And do you go in with an outcome in mind? Uh, no. No. I think that um, I know there are lots of people who go into a subject looking to slant uh, slant it in a particular way. And they don't necessarily have to be alive mm. um, uh, or with you a lot of the time, but I think you can often go through that process and then you finish that process liking that person yeah. a little less. Um, but with Bowie, e even though I knew uh, a lot about Bowie, um, even though I knew Bowie quite well, after I did, and I interviewed a lot of people for this book, I interviewed 150 people. Having done that, I came out the other side actually liking David Bowie a lot more 
that I had done when I went in, which I think is a remarkable achievement. Mm. And, and I think that's quite if, rare, is it? Uh, I think it's rare. Mm. But I think if you interview 150 people, the painting, the portrait that you're painting of someone tends to be quite accurate. And this is a book where it's people's uh, verbatim accounts of their relationships. This isn't me taking uh, their transcripts and trying to um, turn it to my point of view or my agenda. This is basically just allowing the story of David Bowie to be told through the voices of other people. So I think it's a, I think, I think it's a, it's an honest way to do a biography. Mm. And how's that different from say the one you did with Paul Smith? Was, was that a different way you wrote that book? Um, that was a less immersive book. Um, that was more like a, a sort of chunkier version of a magazine in a way. Mm. Um, but the Bowie book is quite granular. There's a, there's a lot of detail in it. Mm. I tend to go back through my early work and think, that was a load of rubbish. <laughs> I'm not very good at looking back. When I'm doing something, I'm like excited that this is going to be the new great thing. And I look back on a lot of my early work and just think, ugh. I guess like Radiohead look back at Pablo Honey or something like that, even though I love it. What's your relationship with your early work and your more kind of your newer work? Um, I don't particularly worry about the past in that respect. I think that when I started, uh, there's, a, there's a certain amount of growing up in public. Uh, I was looking for something the other day and I read something I'd written about 35 years ago and it's utter rubbish, but, um, <laughs> uh, but it's got, a, it's got great enthusiasm. Yeah. I was writing about the right people. I had the right opinion. I just wasn't expressing it in a particularly elo eloquent way. Right. So you could still look at what you had and saw in yourself that was good. Yeah. I mean, the, the writing wasn't particularly, um, noteworthy, but, uh, but the enterprise was, yeah. Mm. Okay, so what, in your view, makes a great writer? Um, what makes a great writer? Well, I think this is an interesting point because I think a lot of writers think that, that you have to have innate talent, and you don't. I mean, you can teach write. writing. It's like that 10,000-hour rule. Mm. You spend enough time doing it, you can get good at it. Yeah. I mean, I'm... I'm uh, I'm a pretty good writer, but I, I wasn't a good writer. I'm, I'm borderline dyslexic. I didn't have, um, I had to basically train myself. Mm. But if you do it enough, you get good at something. It's like riding a bike or mm. becoming a painter or a doctor, I, I would imagine. It's, you have to, it's all about practice. Mm. And I say to people who um, want to become writers, I say the best thing you can do is just write. Mm. Write a lot. Interview a lot of people, do a lot of stories, review a lot of films, go to a lot of political conferences, what, what, whatever you want to do, whatever your bag is. Or even if you don't know what your bag is, just go and do a lot of stuff because inadvertently you will become better at, at what you want to do. Mm. I mean, you can't train everyone. I mean, some people uh, have a little bit of talent and then you train them, you train them. Uh, and it just doesn't work out. They just, they don't develop. Mm. But a lot of people can develop and you don't have to have innate gifts. Mm. Are there any writers you particularly admire or like to, like to read? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it would be invidious to talk about uh, my favourites because we employ a lot of writers on the magazine. But um, uh, you, I think as an editor, as a commissioning editor, you have to have a... 
you have to enjoy writing. You have to enjoy writers. You have to be able to appreciate good writing mm. and hopefully discover new writers as well. Yeah. I guess there's this perception maybe that the greater the writer, the artist, the bigger the diva, the more difficulties they're enduring in their life. It's like to be a great artist, you have to be going through all this pain. You got any thoughts on that? Um, it's not true. No. Um, uh, you get very different personality types. Yeah. I mean, some writers are very difficult and others, others, others less so. Mm. Um, I tend not to be particularly um, uh, accommodating with difficult writers. Um, some of them you have to. Uh, some are difficult, and you and and you have to um, uh, you have to bite your lip. But uh, most writers are sensible and smart enough to know that they can't misbehave too badly. Mm. And when you say you're not particularly accommodating, you mean you're just selective on who you work with? Yeah, I don't. I don't like working with difficult people. I mean, no. I've worked with a lot of difficult people in my time. A lot of d- difficult photographers, um, writers, lots of difficult people um and talent is often difficult enough you don't want to make a rod for your own back Mm. and what is it that makes people like this difficult ego right and i think the assumption that because they're successful um that they can somehow act uh in a in a uh, in a in a in a in a in a, in a different way than most people act, mm. which is frankly not, not acceptable. No. And surely logic tells you that whatever path you went down to earn your success, why change the course of your path when you're there? Is that, is that not just a common sense thing? What, what do you mean? As in like, you know, you probably had some humility, you had some work ethic, you probably... Um, it didn't make everything all about you to get to your level of success. And then when you are at your level of success, why does one turn into a diva? I, I, you, 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 you can see how easily it can happen. Um, but I think it's, uh, often I think it's a lot of people, it, 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 it takes longer. And I think with, with some people, particularly celebrities, I think that they tend to become, they, they get stuck. If you're, if you become famous at the age of 15 mentally you'll probably you'll always be 15 because mm-hmm. you haven't really matured and so a lot of people that you meet who become more successful later in life tend to be more balanced right i think yeah. I, think, yeah. I mean that's a sweeping generalization but i but i would say that it's pretty true mm. um i know a couple of people mentors i've had have said to me that you know, when they think you're really good, maybe you're not as good as they think you are. But when they think you're really bad, maybe you're not as bad as they think you are. I'd, I'd say that was true as well. Mm. So I've got a couple more questions. Then we do a little quick fire round, if that's all right. So um, do you remember the exact moment where you were, what you were doing when you found out you were getting your OBE? Uh, I just opened a letter. But yeah, I mean, I was, I opened a letter in the place by the front door where I opened letters. Yeah. yeah. And was, was that something you were expecting? Did it, how did you feel when you, when you uh, got it? I wasn't expecting it and it, it was great. It was, um, it's weird because you can't, you're not really meant to tell anyone. Mm. Um, but I, but I was pleased for my kids. Um, I think they liked it more than I did. I wish my parents had been alive. I think they would have enjoyed it more than I did, but yeah, it's, it's very flattering. It's nice. Mm. And how did you feel about receiving something like that as a 
um, someone who's who does what you do. Maybe it does change things. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe you're just who you are regardless. How do you feel about that? I don't think it compromises you. No. I don't think there's anything that I was about to do journalistically that I thought that I wouldn't do because I'd been given an honour. And yeah. if, uh, if I thought it would, then I perhaps would have not accepted it. But uh, no. Mm. Okay. Thank you. Uh, podcasts. Uh, so this is uh, going to be a podcast. And podcasts are, hey, look, I kind of do it for fun because I don't have to work too hard anymore. Um, but it's kind of, they've kind of gone a bit huge. There's some massive podcasts in the world that seem to be driving a lot of political narrative. There's these long form two, three hour podcasts yeah. with very interesting people getting together. I get to meet people like yourself when we've not met before through the podcasting medium. Is that something you've had an eye on, you're interested in or want to talk about? Well, it seems to be a huge growth area. Um, we started in a small way. We have a football podcast that does quite well. We're launching a couple of others. We're going to have a fashion podcast. Um, we're thinking of launching a political podcast earlier in the um, early next year. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're great. I mean, it's 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 on demand radio, isn't it? I mean, it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but it is kind of <laughs> people go podcasts are incredible, aren't they? Go well, yeah, they are. It's it's smart people talking. It's, yeah, yeah. Idiot. Yeah. Um, uh, I think I, I think they're great. And also, as you said earlier, I think that anything that involves conversation, anything that's considered, anything where uh, things aren't just in bite-sized chunks, is to be um, appreciated these mm. days. Mm. So what fascinates me is, like anyone who's listened to a podcast that – for the first time, it's like a life-changing experience for them. And like you said, well, isn't it just radio? Um, but it kind I don't of, mean that in a, in a no, pejorative way at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, it has many benefits to radio, like on-demand, yeah. no ads. You can you don't have to wait for stuff. Um, obviously, it's not new. Um, there was a sort of a big push 15 years ago or so, and then it all sort of died out. But, but still only about 5% of the UK actually listen to a podcast, which um, surprises me. So... Um, yeah, obviously I'm biased. I have a podcast, but I think it's got big growth potential. <laughs> I do really feel I talk to a lot of interesting people uh, and I seem to be having more conversations about podcasts now as well as their life. And people do seem to agree on what you said as well. They don't want fake news anymore. They like unedited content because then it has to be true. Or one, there is the assumption that it's true if it's unedited. Um, and you get to see the real side of the person that you like rather than it filtered through channels which might manipulate that sure i look forward to seeing more gq podcasts in the future so do i (laughs) so do i all right great so we've got a a couple of quick fire ones yeah and then we will leave you to it um so i guess you could have retired could i i guess thank you (laughs) why do you keep doing what you do i love it yeah and also the job is very different now from what it was 10 years ago because mm. it involves so many different things. And it's great. It's a, it's a great company. It's a great brand. Mm. I work with some fantastic people, and, it, and it's fun. Mm. And when you say different, I'm, I'm assuming you mean different good. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. Well, I think there's, a, also, there's, there's an element of fear. I mean, it might not work. Um, delivery channels, distribution channels, tech, consumer habits could change so much. I mean, they... they, they change with a with uh with great frequency mm. and in three years time we might all be doing something completely different who knows but that 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 adds an element of 
danger, mm. which is also fun, I think. Yeah. So fun, danger, maybe variety, bit yes. of the unknown. Yeah. All of the all of the above. Great. All ticked. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Okay. Um, you've had an experience with the Hoffman process. Yeah. How was that? What's what's the process like, and how was that? Um, it was it was fascinating actually. It's something I'd never really considered before, but um, but I was encouraged to do it by my wife. And um, <laughs> and there I, might be a whole other podcast on that. Subject. I went with huge reservations, to be honest with you. Um, and I was quite cynical about the, the whole thing, but I recommend anyone to do. It. I thought it was terrific. Mm. I thought it was really good. It's basically a um, a sort of uh, a, a, a Sounds incredibly navel gazing, but it's a process of self discovery, and it was mm. it was brilliant. Loved it, mm. absolutely loved it. And what did you discover in the process? Well, you discover a lot about yourself. Um, and going back, it's like you said earlier about something else. I think you discover a lot of things about yourself that a lot of things about yourself which you probably don't like very much. But then you also discover a lot of things that are good about yourself which you probably didn't realise. So mm. it's good. Yeah. One thing, one of my mentors, his name's John Demartini, and he's known as a polymath. He says to me that every human being has every trait. Um, and, you know, whilst we judge others for the things they do that we perceive we don't like or are wrong, they are also in ourselves. And I've, I've, I found that interesting. Just what you said reminded me of that. I think we've all got things inside of us that we don't like about ourselves, things in other people that we don't like that are probably mirrored within ourselves. I'd say that um, was true. Mm. Okay, thank you. So, um, hey, look, there's a couple of these questions I ask every time, and each time I look at them, I think they're terrible questions, but they often produce good answers. So I'll let you judge. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? I don't think I've ever been given a great piece of advice, and I don't say that conceitedly, like I know everything, but I don't think I had great mentors when I was younger. Um, I had some very good people I worked for. But I always say to people, I say that when they, uh, we, have, we, we try and take as many uh, interns with any work experience people as, as we can. Um, and if they come for a chat and they ask questions about their career or what they should do, I always say that you have to, the way to get on, you just have to work incredibly hard. You have to work harder than you've ever considered working before. The second thing, as I say, is you have to be lucky. Mm. I was lucky. Uh, what, what was lucky in your? Because I got, because I, I got a break. Uh, but when I got that break, I worked very, very, very hard. But you, but you do need to be lucky, and you, we, mm. we can teach the first, but we can't teach the second, unfortunately. Do you think if people work hard for long enough, then their break will happen? You're, you're more likely to because mm. you have more contact points, mm. and if you're if you're working, if you're engaging, you're meeting people. Inadvertently, the odds go up. Yeah. Mm. Okay, thank you. Uh, worst advice you've ever been given? Talking very specifically, I don't, it wasn't advice, but I know that um, quite a few people I met in the early days said you, 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 can, you, can, only, you, can, be, you, you can be a writer or you can be an editor, but you can't be both. And I just don't think that's true, particularly these days when everybody has to be a little bit of everything, I think. Mm. And could it be argued that, and being a writer and an editor makes you better at both. Oh, I would hope so. Um, is there anything in the world that you'd particularly like to change or you just think is wrong? And then there's just two more after this. Um, that's a very big question. 
Uh, ask me after Brexit's over. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> uh, so this podcast is called The Disruptive Entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, and it's not just for entrepreneurs. Um, it's for, I guess, people who want to move forward, get ahead, and be in control of change rather than a victim to it. Yeah. What does that word disruptive mean to you? I think that it's a very emotive word, and I think it's, it's one of those words that people bandy about. But actually, I think in this day and age, it's incredibly important. I think it's powerful. I think people are looking for it, and I think they're looking for it in every, uh, in every walk of life, in every discipline, in every profession. And I think it's probably more important to be a disruptor now than it's ever been before mm. because you can, you can attach real commercial value to it. Mm. Uh, also, I think that the uh, potential, I think the possibilities now are probably greater than they've ever been because of technology. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd say that, uh, I'd say that in, in the old days when you, had, when you had to put your profession on your passport, I think being able to write disruptor would be pretty cool. That would be like, <laughs> you are made if you can write that. <laughs> Brilliant. And then finally, uh, where do you want us to go to follow you more? Uh, maybe you could talk about where we can get the, the Bowie book you've just You written. can get the, the, the Bowie, David Bowie, Your Life are all good book, bookstores and yeah. Amazon. You can buy it anywhere you like, don't care where you buy it, but do buy it. It's fantastic. <laughs> You've done this before. And do you do any um, social media yourself where you comment? Can people follow you on social media? Yeah, I'm on Instagram at Dylan Jones um, GQ. I, I did Twitter for a while. I, I, had a, I had a couple of goes at Twitter. But Twitter I find too aggressive mm. and too corporate now. And just because someone's got an opinion doesn't mean it's worth sharing. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, well, we'll leave it on that. Dylan, thank you very much. Thank you very, thank much, you very much indeed. Very it was indeed. fun. Thank you. Thanks a lot.